Welcome to the Redemption's Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. All right, well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, just be honest, it's interesting, church and COVID. We never know what we're going to get. There's going to be a lot of us, a couple of us. Uh, I think me and Garrett plan to play music no matter what, but uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, today we find ourselves in... Uh, the fourth beatitude from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was just Jesus's first sermon, right? So there's this kind of manifesto thing that's going to happen in here as he lays out in it what his kingdom would bring and do in our world, right? By specifically showing how redemption or salvation would really upend the way of life in the world at that time. And then even it would upend the way of life that that we live now, how the gospel would radically transform hearts. The gospel was never meant to be an institution, uh, a political party, uh, a a race, uh, an area. It, It was supposed to be a dramatic transformation of people under him under this King Jesus. So uh, to begin teaching how the kingdom or his kingdom would come and that reign would be different, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with this section uh, that we are now in called the Beatitudes, which was Jesus's way to show how the gospel is just going to reorientate everything in our life. How it changes specifically what we think of happiness and flourishing. That's what Beatitude or Makarios mean. Uh, it changes specifically uh, how we see ourselves, how we see our personal needs, how we see our own life. And then also we're going to see that the Beatitudes change uh, also how we actually live in our lives. This means that the Beatitudes for us will, will end up being kind of weighty, like actually really weighty. Uh, hopefully not heavy as in a burden that that crushes you, but but heavy as in something significant and powerful to do work in your life. And here's the reason that it's weighty uh, and that it can be just kind of a big deal is the Beatitudes will, will constantly confront our hearts over and over and over again. The Beatitudes will crash into and smash into our desires, our indwelling sins, and our struggles. And they're constantly going to ask us, Maybe an uncomfortable question, do you really follow Jesus? There's no way not to ask those questions as you go through this. Or have you submitted to the reign and rule of Jesus in your life? Have you really done it so much so that his ways and his teachings and his character even, they get to challenge your ways and your character? Church, this is part of the hope for this series is that it would cause us to see if the gospel is still doing work in us personally. Here's the thing that we want to kind of process. Is the gospel still molding you and me? Has it stalled out? Did it do a good work at one point and now it's just not doing anything anymore? Has the gospel changed us and is it still changing us? The Beatitudes make us look at this. So the flow of the first three Beatitudes was was clear as they looked at our personal needs. First, we're called to see that we are spiritually needy people. This is to be poor in spirit, to know that we have needs that we cannot meet on our own. Our sin and brokenness and following ourselves has brought us to a place of great need that has to be met by another, namely Jesus Christ. We are spiritually impoverished. And then the second beatitude that shows um, that not only are those who are we those who see that we are poor in spirit, but we also see with this unfiltered, sometimes uncomfortable look, the reality of not only who we are, but what we actually really do. 
that there are times uh, that, that we know what's right and we don't do it. And it's this call to, to when you see with an unfiltered view what you're really doing, that sometimes we grieve over that, not out of shame that God won't love us anymore, but really after this kind of tension of, I want to follow Jesus more, and sometimes my actions betray that. Then the third beatitude last week made the possibly unexpected shift where we don't just see and acknowledge our, our sins internally, right? Just inside of us, but we end up also dealing with them externally among the world. This was the call to be meek, to apply the grace that we have been uh, given by Christ to the world around us, to not crush other people with our power, but to love them, to reject the power structure in our world by being meek. Man, that's such a needed message in our time of outrage. A call to humility and gentleness where Jesus says, I don't care what they're doing. Don't play along. That's not what I've called you to do. And now on this fourth beatitude that we'll look at today, it's going to make another major shift. We've got a slide over it. Uh, it made sense in my mind, so maybe, so maybe it will for, for yours. It's just the very first one in there. There you go. Uh, we'll see that the first three beatitudes are beatitudes of need. Right? They, they are all things that, that we need. We need to be poor in spirit to walk in the kingdom of God. We need to actually see our action and not deflect it, but, but wrestle with it. We need to be meek. And those all lead us to this middle one uh, or this center, this major theme, uh, which is the, the, the one that we're going to be in today. And then once you work out of that, the tail end of the Beatitudes will actually then shift into our action. So here's the thing. Our needs move into the center of righteousness today. And that center of righteousness is then meant to flow into our actions afterwards. We'll be able to see more of that as the series progresses. But Jesus is showing us if we don't actually hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is that centerpiece for today, if that's not our desire, then the gospel will not move forward. Essentially, it will not break through to the realm of our real lives if we don't wrestle with this hungering and thirsting for righteousness personally. It will not pass how we feel about ourselves and actually start being demonstrated in the territory of our regular life, of how we live. And, and that's the point. Following Jesus isn't meant to be a mental nod. It, it's, it's meant to be walked out and lived out and filtered into our actions. So make a mental note, because even though this series is a Beatitude series, we're going to take the next couple texts afterwards. The texts after that are the salt and light texts, which say that followers of Christ are meant to be the salt of the earth, this preservative into something that's breaking. And that we're meant to be a light of the world, that we're meant to shine the light of Jesus into the world. If the gospel doesn't plumb deeper to actually go into the way of our lives, here's the question. How will we ever be salt and light? And the answer is we won't. We, we won't be. And we have to wrestle with that. We are meant to be not just saved as in not go to hell. We're meant to be those who are ambassadors to Christ to show the world a different way. But if we're not living a different way, how will we ever do that? Here's the verses for, for today, Matthew 5, 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, we went up on a mountain, and, we sat, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are, those who, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Beatitude 1. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit uh, the earth. That's the really hard heart work that we had to do last week. And then this week, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This beatitude not only becomes the center about everything in the Christian 
life, but Jesus delivers it in a way that kind of breaks the mold of what he's done so far. So, so let's explain. The, the Beatitudes so far, we've seen this rhythm of three parts, right? The very first is the makarios or blessed are. That's part A so far that we've seen that makes up the beginning. And then it moves into a trait or posture. That's the second part. That would be the, the meek or the mourn or the poor in spirit. So A, uh, blessed are those who are this, that's B. And then we have C, this third part at the end, that's this, this promise or benefit uh, of the second thing there. Now, this beatitude, this fourth one actually adds a fourth element that appears. Now, we're not trying to flex on why we're seeing this differently. It's important to see in between the first and the second element in this fourth beatitude is an outlier. And what does this fourth element do? It focuses on our wants. And that's extremely important. It focuses on our desires, what we think we need in life. And it's expressed by the words hunger and thirst. So in this one, it's blessed are those that hunger and thirst who want to deeply desire. And then it goes into the normal section from before. Now, this hunger and thirst, when a person in biblical times heard these words, it meant something very different. And it landed on them very different than it does to us today. So remember, they're in kind of an arid climate. They're falling. This is a sermon on a mount. They kind of gone through a part of a desert to get to this mount. Uh, the, the people then would have understood what it was to live in a, de- a desert-ish type territory. Uh, and they also understood what it meant to live in a place where weather, war, disease, or social class all greatly played into whether you could have food or water. Right, so we, we go to a number of taps in our house and we get water. Right? You can press a button. You can turn a dial. You have one outside to wash your car off if you have a house. Like Water is easy for us to come by. That would not have existed for them. Water had to be gathered. Right? So if you want water to drink, you literally had to get up and you had to go to a spring or a well and you had to get that water. And if you wanted water at home... Well, you had to manually carry that water back to your house. Water was very different for them. And if war came, it could impede your ability to get to your water source. If the rains didn't come, the the well or spring that you used may have been dried up. You kind of get the idea, but there would have been times for them uh, because of that, that they would have experienced thirst where they wanted water, but there was no water to be had. There was no water to be gathered. So they understood what a parched mouth and a painful body aching for a need for water was like. We don't understand that. They did. Food would have been the same way. We, for the most part, have money to go to big buildings, name things like Hy-Vee, and gather our own food. They didn't have that. And civil and environmental reasons could have easily come that would have cut them off for food. Or at different times, civil or other unrest could have came where they did not have the money to buy food at a market. It would have been quite common at different points in people's life to not have anything to eat and not have anything to drink. So essentially, when Jesus says hunger and thirst to the crowd there, they would have automatically like felt that deep gut thing that we really don't get the same way of, of feeling hunger. They were acquainted with hunger pain. They knew true thirst and the feeling of, if I don't get water, I may die. And they knew how truly being hungry and thirsty for something would dictate your actions after that. Meaning if you're truly hungry, like you have no food for a while, then you're going to go to any lengths to get food. You'll work. You'll beg. You'll borrow. You'll probably steal. They knew that. 
Why? To meet that feeling of hunger because it is what drives you. And when you are that hungry, nothing else matters because it's at the forefront. When a person is truly hungry, their hunger will supersede all other things in their life because it's the greatest need that they have and it absolutely has to be met. So as Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, he's aiming directly at what a person lives for and must have in life. What is at the top? What directs your efforts, your time, your emotions? What do we feel like we would die or life would not be worth living without? What must we get? What would our heart not be okay without having in life? These are the things that we hunger and thirst for. For us, these things are probably different depending on our personality, where we've come from, what season or phase of life we're in. But here it is. The question that is worth asking is, what are you hungering and thirsting for? Are you aware of your own heart for the things that you're hungry for or not? In broad terms, what do you want? What do you really, really want? What does your time and your effort and your money and your thoughts and your emotions, what do those all flow towards? What do you feel like you must have in order to be satisfied in life? This is what you hunger and thirst for. And I would urge you, if you don't know, if you haven't spent some time thinking about that, to process that today and this week. What do I have to have? What's the top? Now let's move to the next element and try and see what Jesus is saying here. This beatitude says happy and flourishing are those who hunger and thirst, who want in the deepest way to be righteous. Again, to hunger and thirst for something isn't just to give something a nod. It isn't just to say you want something but not actually move towards it. Uh, Right now, I really want one of those new Ford Broncos. The four-door, I want to be able to take the top off. I want my kids to think I am the man as we go through even human Missouri with like air flowing through. Like I want to do that really bad. But I have not put a deposit down. I have not tried to figure out how to tell my wife that we need one. I haven't crunched the numbers to figure out if we could pay for one. Literally, all I've done is watch YouTube videos, which I'm like, oh, those are, those are cool. So I do think one would be cool. I legit do want to own one at someday, but I have not hungered and thirsted for one. Why? Because my want hasn't changed what I do. This type of Bronco want, this hollow want that isn't really backed by anything. This is not what Jesus is talking about here when he says hunger and thirst for righteousness. That idea is crucial, though, as we open up this beatitude, because most people who go to church or they they grow up with some sort of faith paradigm or background, if you ask them, do you want to be righteous? They're like, I got this one. Yes. Yes, I do. I do want to be righteous. See, we're conditioned to say we want it. And I think we're actually conditioned to believe that we actually want it. But what if we ask the follow-up question? Where in your life is that want actually expressed? Or essentially, what is your plan to get the righteousness that you say that you want? What what in your life is pulling you towards this thing that you hunger for? And for some people, there would be no answer to the second question. Yes, I want to be righteous. What's that look like? Yes, I want to be righteous. See, there's no plan, and thereby that means they don't really actually at their core truly want to be righteous. See, like gravity, our lives will lean towards the things that we hunger and thirst for. Whether they're good or bad, all things will pull you towards that. 
The hunger and thirsting for righteousness has to be more than an empty answer or not, though. It involves a plan, strategy, and intentionality. If you're wondering, are we going to a gospel of works? No, it doesn't save you. But it is what you do when you're saved. We should do some work to make sure we understand this idea of righteousness, though. Biblically, the theme of righteousness has two main categories that it falls into. The first would be righteousness as justification, right? I think Romans were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the doctrine that our works do not save us. Only Christ's work saves us. Uh, Since we're poor in spirit, we need Christ's righteousness, his resume to be applied to our account so that we can be right with God. So the understanding there's nothing that you or I do to justify ourselves. It is Christ and Christ alone. That's one side of righteousness. But there's a second side, though. Righteousness as sanctification. That's the process of becoming more like Jesus. See, this beatitude has both forms in mind. Meaning it isn't just that we hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness to be applied to our account. It isn't just we hunger and thirst to be judicially declared right with God. It is that we hunger and thirst to actually look and act and walk more like Jesus. That's what this righteousness means. To hunger and thirst is to have a deep desire to be free from your sin. To not be gripped by it. To not live for it, harbor it, deny it, be mastered by it. But to instead truly be free in Christ. Why? By or how? By becoming and living more like Christ. John Stott says this. You guys, here's my hope. I don't want this to be a shame, duty-bound message. So I pray the Holy Spirit does work to put us in a good spot to hear this. But John Stott says, it's not enough to mourn over past sin. We must also hunger for future righteousness. Those are different. What happens if you give a hungry man flowers? You see a guy on the side of the road who's truly hungry. And you go, I got no food for you, but I'll sing you a song. Can I sit down and tell you about a story that I heard? Does that satisfy the man? Does it bring comfort to his life? No. It probably brings frustration. Why? Because it doesn't actually meet what he wants. See, to hunger for something is to be in a spot where nothing else will satisfy you. This is the way Jesus speaks to us pertaining to righteousness. Doesn't mean we can't do other things and have other focuses, but where we go, I will not be satisfied if I'm not living more and becoming more like Jesus. Again, that leads us to the question that we may not actually be asking. If you are honest, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness or are you content with just being forgiven? Do you want to be more like Christ? To trust him in such a way that you submit your life to live more like him and not more like yourself. See, that's the problem. I think a lot of times we project the way we want to do things as Jesus. No, that's you. Do we want to live more like Christ and not ourselves? Guys, this is a heavy question that I have wrestled with this week. D.A. Carson says this. I think we'll all probably connect to it in some way. Many today are prepared to seek other things. Spiritual maturity, 
real happiness, the Spirit's power, effective witnessing skills. Other people chase from preacher to preacher in conference to conference, seeking vague blessing from on high. They hunger for a spiritual experience. They thirst for the consciousness of God. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness? Guys, we want a lot of things. Do we actually want to be like Jesus, though? This is why this one is the core. This one's hard. The hard truth that we have to embrace this morning is hungering and thirsting for righteousness is extremely difficult. Why? Because to walk into it is extremely painful. Why? Because the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus and less like you, it hurts really bad. See, we can tend to say that we want it. I want to be more like Jesus. But when we feel the tension of actually having to become like us and the pain involved, like, ah, maybe I don't want it that bad. Can I just be a good witness? Why does sanctification and a desire for righteousness hurt at times? Because in order to become more like Jesus, to live more righteously, like him, the only way, and this is why it's hard, the only way to become more like him is to become less like you. To have the remnants of our sin and old self more fully put to death. See, the doctrine of justification means that your, your, uh, the resume of Jesus is planted over your life. So while you're still dirty, you're declared clean. But the reality is your heart still has a whole lot of dirty stuff left in it. So in order to kind of walk through that and have the gospel continually change you, you have to ask the gospel to keep working, and it pulls out those remnants of the old self that will not die yet. The Bible speaks of purification or sanctification, this process of becoming more like Jesus, in terms often of how silver is purified. To purify silver back then, a metal smith would heat it up with fire. And the heat, the burning heat, would melt the silver into a liquid form. And when it gets to the right temperature, the, the, the dross, which is the impurity, the, the filth, will rise to the top and it'll sit on top of the silver. And as it sits there, the, the, the metalsmith takes this object and he literally rakes it across the top and it rips the filth out of the purity. It scrapes it away forcibly and violently. The difficult reality about righteousness for us is this is the process that has to happen for us to be more righteous like Christ. Often through fire, through hardship, through things that we don't love, our impurities will rise to the surface and the Holy Spirit will scrape them away and our flesh will scream. That means a major way to become more like Jesus than we are right now is for our anger, our greed, our pride, our lust, our arrogance, our self-righteousness. For me, what I've wrestled with this week, my desperate feeling of wanting to be in control has to be pulled out of my hands, physically removed. 
Now, make no mistake, it's an act of grace. Why? Because it's freeing you from your old self. But that act of grace can hurt while you're in the, in the process. This is why many Puritan authors wrote about what they called the mortification of sin. An active desire to chase after and hunt down sin by asking Jesus to pull it out of you. To put it to death. To wage war on the dark corners of your heart instead of ignoring them. What's hard about this? To wage war against your sin is to wage war against part of your own heart in some ways. Why? So Christ can reign. That's scary. It's uncomfortable. This is what trusting and following looks like. Christ, I trust you enough to ask you to completely remove and take away all things that don't follow you in my heart. Take them by whatever means necessary. You realize like, that's an easy thing to say. It's kind of terrifying to mean. This brings us to another point that Christ is laying out. Righteousness in our world, like the world you want to see, it starts by looking inward, not outward. The culture, the climate that we live in right now, it blames everyone else for everything. All tragedies, all injustices, political unrest, financial issues, everything is someone else's fault. And we're really good at raging out on the other people who it's their fault. But the hunger and thirst for righteousness in the world is also to hunger and thirst for righteousness in your own heart. What would it be like if everyone in the world right now, 100% of the population, sought out to be righteous by following Christ? What would it do to racism? Systematic oppression, what would it do to wars, poverty, sex trafficking, and the like? What would it do to those things? The answer is that if everyone fully trusted and followed Christ, if everyone hungered and thirsted for righteousness, they'd all be gone. Now, I'm not making a case for that actually happening on this side of eternity, but I am saying that we bias our view of righteousness by pointing out the other way that people are not righteous far more than actually looking in our heart and going like, what part do I have to play here? And this process of kind of nasal gazing, gazing leaves us blind to where we still have issues. See, Jesus is adding to the previous beatitude by not just asking for meekness in a way that refuses to smash other people or blame other people for the world's issues, but he's now asking us for us to be hungry to look inside of our own hearts and let him shine his light into the places that we normally wouldn't want him to. 
to let him set us free by trusting him more. Can you feel the tension there? I think in our, in our hearts, maybe we hear this message like, oh, that's hard. Yeah, it is. See, in a world that has monetized and really they made hate a commodity, we're called to look inward and ask Christ to keep working in and on us. Much more than we are to look out and point out what's wrong with everyone else. Guys, is that why we're in our age culture? Because it's just easier to farm out things to other people's heart instead of looking inside our own? Possibly. Then we see the promise. The beautiful promise at the end of this beatitude. See, we so badly want our desires to be satisfied. Especially those that surround concepts like happiness and flourishing. We want to be happy and we want to flourish. But the problem is, because we want to be happy and flourish, we aim at happiness and flourishing to get there. Those become our hungers and thirsts. But Jesus is telling us, if you want happiness and flourishing, we must trust him enough to stop aiming at those primarily, to stop letting our lives be dictated only by those things and hunger and thirst for righteousness instead and trust him that that will take us there. We get to what we want by not actually aiming at it, but yet that's how we find satisfaction. Let me break that down a little bit. Like, what does that look like in life when it goes sideways? If we're the types, and I think that maybe we vacillate in different points where we could all be this. If we're, the, if we become like the vacation people, like I love my Colorado trip. If we become vacation people, and experiences are what are going to make us happy, what do we do? I'm going to aim at more experiences, more vacations, more trips, more things, and we begin to live for those things. Right? We work our tails off why to make more money to go on more trips because that's how I'm going to be happy. Uh, we, we do more things, all aimed at getting to this version of, of happiness. But what happens is we'll take countless trips because that's what's going to make us happy. And then when we're back home and the Instagram likes fade away, we'll still have unsettled and frustrated hearts going, that was supposed to make me happy. It was really fun, but I'm not happy. See, Jesus says to this, well, you're aiming at the wrong thing. Trust me, aim for righteousness. Aim for me. You can take awesome trips, thank God, right? Just watch out for your hunger and thirst for them, though. They're probably not going to give you what you want. Same thing goes for when we want success, power, or money. Right? When we believe that those things will satisfy, what do we do? We aim for them. Everything's financial decisions and climbing the ladder and getting what we want. And even if we actually get them, if we get to the metaphorical peak, where we're surely going to be happy and flourish. What's the story over and over? And it's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. You get to the peak and you find yourself alone, empty, and way, way more jacked up than you were a while before. Jesus says to them as well. You aimed at the wrong thing. And he's not saying it while throwing a right hook. He says it lovingly. Gentle and lowly at your weakest point, you aimed at the wrong thing. Come here, let's try this instead. 
See, this is the sad truth that we face and actually our entire world faces after the fall. We look for meaning, satisfaction, and happiness in everything under the sun. And yet when we chase those things with all that we have, each time like grasping at the, grasping after the wind, our hands will be empty. See, Jesus' message is again like Romans. Stop chasing creation over creator. Pursue righteousness by pursuing Christ, the one who is righteous. Ask him to change you. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. So that all places of your life may be placed under his reign and rule. Again, to make sure that we're doctrinally and and theologically putting this in the right place. Do I chase righteousness so I'm saved? No, 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 you're already saved. The question is, do you want to be free? Do you want to be happy? Then... Our lives have to look different than the way that the world chases things. And we chase Jesus and his life instead because he goes, I've come to set you free. This beatitude makes us face two big questions. We've already kind of laid them out. First, just this, what do you want? There is great value in being emotionally aware to what you're living for. What are you hunger and thirsting for? If it's something besides the righteousness of Christ and you say that you're a follower of Christ or if Christ's righteousness isn't even on the list, just the question that we have to ask to undergird that is why not? Has he already not shown himself to be trustworthy? Has he already not shown that he is good? See, this beatitude would be a great time to ask the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our counselor, to speak into what we're living for. To maybe alter our view of where uh, Macarius, happiness and flourishing actually come from. God, I know that this is doctrinally what you're saying, and I know it, and I can't get there, and here's the reality. I don't even believe it right now. Holy Spirit, we hope. The second, if you'd say that righteousness is what you're hungering and thirsting for, So let's just kind of pragmatically talk about what's the plan to get there then? Again, not salvation by works, but we plan for our 401k. We plan for cars. Well, that's probably a bad example right now. Most people don't plan for cars. We plan, we plan for houses, we plan for marriages, all of these big things in our life. We make a plan. What's the plan to become more righteous? This isn't a question to drive us into shame. It's simply to give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak into how your life is now set up. Because here's the thing. At times we can want something, but constantly be frustrated because we're not aware that we want it, but we're literally not on a path that will ever take us there. So maybe a good moment for us today is to let the Holy Spirit put a plan together with us for how to become more righteous. Because these involve the word, maybe worship. These involve community where other people get to speak into the hard places of your heart. But if we want to grow in righteousness, what are we going to try and just put ourselves around and have stir in our hearts to get us there? Now, I have to say for some of you, because one of, the, one of the weirdest things for being a pastor is a lot of times you'll preach a message and 
the people who need to hear it will be like, that's not me. And the people who are like actually doing good will be like, oh, and they'll be crushed. Some of you are seeking righteousness right now. Are you perfectly? <laughs> no. But are you more than you used to? Like actually, tangibly? Yes. I've seen in some of you, even in the middle of a pandemic, some of you doing deep soul work to pursue righteousness. Having meetings with others, praying, studying with others. If that's you, if there are things that you're literally trying to, to do, if you've tried to make a plan, here's my thing for you. Take the win. Worship in light of that. Thank God. You're working on me. We're not done. You're not done. But you are changing me. And, and this process is, is working. You're a good father. And I'm trusting you more. Keep going. There's a moment, maybe even a communion, where you, your body and blood has been broken and shed for me. And you are doing a good work. Thank you. You don't always have to beat yourself up. The end of that beatitude was the fulfillment of a promise. Our pursuit of righteousness, though slow at times, though bumpy and maybe all over the place at times, our hunger and thirsting for righteousness will actually be satisfied. Meaning, God, if you are seeking his son, if you're asking his Holy Spirit to lead you, if you're opening the word and saying, transform me, even the hard spots, do your work. It means God's not going to ignore you. Remember some of the stories in the New Testament, ask, seek, knock? What kind of father, when you ask him for a good gift, is going to give you a scorpion or whatever it says in there? You pursue righteousness and he'll meet you. Those are Jesus' words. That's his promise. The beauty of this beatitude is you can grow in it here and now, and you're meant to. So our hunger and thirst for being more like Christ can be satisfied partially now. And then one day, Christ will come and set all things right. He'll fully reign over his creation again. And when he does, our remaining sin, those spots that just haven't been able to get out yet, our struggle, our pain will be forever gone. Your hunger and thirst for righteousness, here's the beauty. It'll be completely satisfied. And you'll never have to hunger for it again because it'll rain. Me and Garrett talked about it this morning. Like, it's a difficult time right now. I don't, I don't know if our parents and other generations, if everyone just kind of thinks this, but watching the news in the morning, our West Coast is on fire. Up north, riots like crazy with guns. We just got past a hurricane. We have COVID that is doing a number on all the things. We have outrage in the political climate like we've never seen with two candidates who are just, right? It's a hard time right now. We're going, how much stuff is broken? Here's the promise. One day it won't be broken anymore. You don't have to wait to get further along than you are now, but one day it'll be done. We have to remember this. Our faith is not a roll of the dice. I think he'll fix this. No, 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 he will. Every tear will be wiped away. Brokenness gone. His righteousness will reign. Literally the foundation for war and hatred and violence 
will be going. We have our work to do now, though, by trusting Jesus to do his work now first. And this becomes the core. We'll do a couple more or the rest of the Beatitudes afterwards, and it's going to filter into our actions where we're going to have to continually ask, do I actually want to be righteous? Because right when we get to the peacemakers, ooh, it's going to test that one. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, where I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a table on the entryway. If you didn't grab one of those cups, you can. But in worship, at some point, take. Jesus, this is your body and blood for all the time. So when I don't chase your righteousness, your righteousness justifies me, but continue to work in me and lead me to you. And I pray when you take that your heart would be encouraged, that you would see a beautiful Savior who isn't done working on you. I hope that appropriately we take this message. This isn't to crush us. This is to encourage us that Jesus has more work to do in our hearts. And even if it hurts, it's for your good. Here's the reality of thought about this week. I hate sanctification in the moment. A year past a hard sanctifying thing, I'm like, God, you're so good. It was worth it. I hope that we wrestle with that appropriately. That we see Jesus as a good king who wants to keep working in our hearts and free us from all the things that we trust over him that are ultimately going to leave us hurt. We stand and pray. God, And I pray you do your work. Things are difficult right now. So much of our body gone. We feel all over the place. The world is a hot mess. So I pray in this call to righteousness that we would find hope. And for my own heart, and I pray for the rest that we would just sincerely ask you to keep working. Thank you for your patience and kindness that you don't give up on us. Please keep working in us. I pray in the ways that we have kind of stopped asking how your gospel is working, that it would kickstart again. That we wouldn't be satisfied. That we wouldn't be saved enough. But that our hearts would genuinely want to look more like you. Not because you'll be angry if we don't, but because it is what is best. God, peel back the layers to where we see your kingdom more clearly and help us have the faith to walk into it. We glorify here. Holy Spirit, do your work. Pray that you would bring conviction where necessary, but also that you bring hope and peace where necessary. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. Be glorified in what we are doing. Pray that in your name. Amen.